Tom Ivester, an alcoholic. Hey, Tom. And I'll try to stretch this out just as much as I can. <laughs> Be a real challenge. <laughs> uh, I tell you, someplace else you'll find old timers, Dennis, is that we got a tendency to just sort of herd them up and pack them off to places. That I was down in Hilton Head uh, a year or so ago. That's the only time of all the countdowns I've ever seen. It's the only time I've ever seen when those over 40 years outnumbered those under one. Only time I've ever seen it. So if you're looking for old timers, go down to the old folks' geriatric colony in Hilton Head, <laughs> and there they are, you know, <laughs> plus a few others. Uh, I, I really appreciate you guys putting this thing on. I, I really appreciate uh, you're doing it and the, the intent and the um, work and uh, the cook. My God, that's heroic. Yeah, that is absolutely heroic. That's, and that's super. And, it, and this is really a, a, a great thing to just sort of pay attention to old folks. Uh, it's, it's a mixed feeling when you're the oldest rat in the barn. It, it's, it's nice in a way. But it's a bummer in a lot of ways. Anybody who's, who, who, who talks about the golden ages, I guarantee you, ain't there. <laughs> Getting out of bed is an ordeal. I mean, I just hate to do that. Everything hurts. I have to counterbalance to get up. And I tell you, man, just sort of dragging around the neighborhood is an ordeal. So, uh, so uh, the golden years just, just ain't hitting on that much, to tell you the darn truth. It's better than quitting, but just barely. I <laughs> Sometimes that's debatable. Uh, let me just, just say a couple of things, and I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do and then get to doing it just as hard as I can. Uh, yeah, I, I've obviously over the years met tons and tons and many thousands of alcoholics. And, and, and I've seen tons and tons of folks leave here, some standing up, some laying down, and, and, and uh, well, old-timers who disappear always intrigue me a lot, And because uh, I can't figure out where to go. I, I can't figure out what would be important enough or seductive enough to get me to drift away. Uh, I'll I, I tell you one, one example of a thing I ran into a while back. I was somewhere, and uh, an old boy came up that I, I had known many, many years before. And so we greeted each other, and uh, I said, where have you been? And he said, I hadn't seen him for 20 years. He said, well, I don't come much anymore. I said, well, I know that, but where have you been? <laughs> and, 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 and what happened? And, 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 and what he said really said something to me. He said, I don't know. It was like he'd never heard the question. He, he said, it seemed like all of my old buddies died, and I just drifted away. And I, I thought, boy, does that ever say it, eh? And he said, now, what about you? I, I said, I'm going as hard as ever and speeding up every chance I get. And, uh, and he basically asked me the same question. He said, how come? And I, and I thought nobody had ever asked me that. I said, well... I guess my old buddies died too. They're the same ones. But I've got a whole new set of buddies. A whole new set of buddies. 
And I'll tell you something. The best way i found to be an old-timer is don't. Don't. Because old-timer is a state of mind. It's not just a measure of years. It's a state of mind. And, and I will absolutely guarantee you that I'm as active in Alcoholics Anonymous as I've ever been in my life. I've never been in hibernation. And the, and the key to it is not that, that just singing along with the same old chorus. It, it's the thing of what makes Alcoholics Anonymous go and grow, and that's active work with other alcoholics. And as long as I do that, I stay on fire. And I'll guarantee you, I'm not only as active, I'm as enthused and invigorated and, and thrilled about the things that happen in this program that I, I could talk all day about that. So I'm not, I'm, I've been here a long time. But I like to think I was sort of an early riser in, or instead of an old-timer. So let me tell you what I want to talk about. Let me tell you what I don't want to talk about, mainly because I'd screw it up so bad. This will not be a history lesson. I'll guarantee you that. If I cite anything as an absolute fact, uh, you better question it because it's probably dead wrong. I think I could get the date we started of June 10, 35. I think that's right. But I wouldn't bet on it. There's some doubt about even that. I got an old document that says it started June 15, and then some newcomer struck that out and put in a zero. So June 10, 35, apparently, is when we started. The rest of it is a lot of stuff. It's a lot of information, and we got history books that tell about it. So that's not what I want to try to fumble around with. What I want to do is, you know how we tell our stories in terms of what we were like, what happened, and what we're like now. And so what I'd like to do is tell our story as a group from one guy's point of view of what we were like as a fellowship, what happened what we're like now, and then I'd like to, to just crowd in one last thing that uh, maybe of what we can do to make the next dimension better. I'd, I'd like to kind of crowd that in if I could. Now, bear in mind, I'm no expert. Just being old doesn't make me smart, just makes me old. And, uh, the, uh, and so, so what, what you'll be hearing is just one guy's experience in this thing. I swear I was going to try to keep his coat on, but I, I just can't do it. Coat's old anyway. <laughs> Everything I got's old. I got socks older. Some of y'all are sober. But, well, <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I, I mean, some of you old timers. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. What we were like, you know, when I think about uh, the, the old days and what I have to watch about, the same thing I do when I tell them a story. I get so caught up in the, 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 the nostalgia, I guess, of what I used to be like, that I, didn't, I could stay there forever. I swear to God, I believe I could talk all day about how drunk I got in different places and what I was like. And it's the same way with the fellowship. I get so darn caught up in what we were like as a fellowship that I'm going to have to discipline myself because I'm going to talk till Dennis does like that. And when Dennis does like that, he means quit, fool. And so I say, <laughs> It may be mid-stroke, but I'll guarantee you, I'll quit when Dennis is too big to argue with. <coughs> uh, oh, so when I think about, about what we were like, a lot of it I have to, uh, to, to just rely on things I picked up over the years. 
Some of it is a, a little mix of, of, of first-hand observation because I was fortunate enough to come in here when some of the folks who, who formed Alcoholics Anonymous were still quite active in the program. I had the great fortune, Jimmy and I we were talking a little bit before the meeting about we're, we're, we're two of the very few in this state who made the international convention in, uh, in Toronto in 65, where we'll be again in two years. Um, and, and I went there primarily to meet Bill Wilson. Yeah, I, I didn't want to tell him anything. I just wanted to meet him. I, I, I think I just wanted to be in his presence and assure that he was there or something. And so I made the trip there and I had a chance to meet Bill. And many, many of the people who were significant in the, in the development and growth of Alcoholics Anonymous had a chance to meet a number of the first hundred or so that, uh, that were here. Uh, the first woman who, who, who actually stayed sober, not the first one in the program, but the first one who stayed sober, Marty Mann. And, and so it, it, it was a tremendously uh, rewarding thing to me to have had some contact with people in those first, first hundred years first hundred people in those first few years. And uh, when I think about that crowd, sometimes we, we, we kind of deify those folk. You know, we we'll tend to deify them and look at it as some magical period of Camelot or something. I, I heard a thing on a golf tournament the other day that I hope this will make sense to you. It's sure connected to me. Somebody was commending an old-time golfer about a wonderful round of golf he shot. And he listened kind of awkwardly for a little bit. And then he said, the longer it's been since that happened, the better I was. <laughs> and when I think about the old days, the, the, the longer it's been since the old days, the better they were. Well, I don't want to demystify that a little bit, but but I, I like to, to think of it in a little different nature. Not to discount the marvelous things that happened, the miraculous nature of what happened, but to, to try to capture the spirit of what we were like. Not, not just what, what, what the events were, but what we were like. And when I think of that, uh, I think of a group of alcoholics, a place in the books describes us as a group of alcoholics in action. And when I think of the old days, that's what I remember are, are people who were a group of alcoholics in action. It was a time when 12-step work, and what I mean by that, I know that they're one of the telling things about the fellowship today as opposed to then, I doubt that 75 to 80 percent of the fellowship have ever been connected to a 12-step call on either end either providing it or receiving it. And so when you say a 12-step call, it's a bad assumption to think that everybody knows what that means. And all it means is that uh, back in the old days, when an alcoholic <laughs> needed help, about the only thing he could do if he was fortunate enough to know anything about it was call AA. And uh, anybody who's longing for those thrilling days of yesteryear with 3 a.m. phone calls from some rowdy drunk that just got thrown out of a bar or was beating up his mama or something like that. Anybody who's, who's yearning for those good old days either wasn't there 
or has a bad memory. Because <laughs> those were, were not exactly fun days. They were rewarding days. But very characteristic of the program back then was the fact that, and I think this is really significant in terms of our overall, of where we are as a fellowship, every single member, every single member of Alcoholics Anonymous was here as the direct result of the intervention of another alcoholic. Every single member. And no member excluded themselves from doing the same for somebody else. You know, it's an amazing thing about, if you think about it, and you, you can relate it to your own experience in, 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 in different ways, but wherever this, this thing caught for you, wherever this thing caught, great, thank you very much, um, is a place that's important to you, and it's a place to which you have great loyalty. You have great loyalty. You know, and you think about that in terms of how you made your initial connection, whether it was a treatment center, the, the insane asylum, county jail, wherever. With mine, it was the maximum custody penitentiary. I, I, I think that's the finest place in the world to get sober. <laughs> I've found very few people who agreed wanted to try it out, but, <laughs> but I, I find it a marvelous place, and I'm still loyal to it to, after 46 years. There's nothing they could ask me to do that I wouldn't do. And so there's a loyalty that comes with where it happens for you. If you think about that, what's the relevance of that? When, when, when you, right now, if you look at what we're doing in the fellowship, we're doing seminars and workshops on how to work with what we call a wet drunk. I always figured that's one fell in the pond or something, you know. That, yeah. But we're doing seminars on that, theoretically dealing with what we'll do if we catch one. And uh, I'm not sure that intellect will, will, that it will yield intellectual treatment. I, I'll give you one example of that. It's a modern-day example. I was speaking to a group down in, uh, somewhere down east here a little bit, and uh, on a Sunday night at uh, Dunn. <laughs> and uh, I, when, I, when, I was, when I was going at I heard a clatter at the back door, and a drunk lady came in. Well, I mean, she was traveling with all the normal grace of a drunk lady and uh, <laughs> chatting with various people who weren't there on the way to the... And she went back to the kitchen, started rattling pots and pans. And I was fascinated. I mean, not by her. I've seen a lot of drunk ladies. I've helped them get that way. That, <laughs> I mean, but, now, I don't mean sober. I got, well, I have done it sober. But anyway, uh, I was fascinated by... See, I'm watching a group. And here's a group of alcoholics who you would expect to instinctively respond appropriately to a drunk woman or drunk anything. We look like the garden club. We didn't a bit more respond. What I saw was about 60 or 70 people very, very awkwardly looking at each other trying to say, what do you do? And I bet you if we had polled that group, response would have been call 911, call the police, throw her out and tell her this is not where she belongs. 
So I was watching that kind of intrigued. I just kept talking. I mean, I always find a drunk woman kind of stimulating. I, I, I sort of started preaching hard. And, uh, but it was intriguing to watch that crowd. And then finally, won't surprise you, Jimmy, the oldest gal, oldest member in the group, a gal named Marguerite, <coughs> just quietly got up. She did what we do. If we know what to do, if somebody's done that for us, it becomes an automatic response. If we didn't come from that kind of an experience, it's an awkward and difficult thing to respond. Marguerite got up, went out there, put her arm around her, took her back in the next room, talked to her. Any, anybody who has gone through that era of active work with alcoholics would do that by instinct. And so why was that important about what we were like? Because it, it set the tone of the character of what we were like as a fellowship. We were not a group of people in a think tank. We were not a group of people in study groups. We were a group of people who got into action very quickly after we got in the door. Nobody asked you if you were ready. They just said, get in the car. I've, t I've had, today I get 12-step calls, not very many, but I get a few uh, because I'll, I'll go. Uh, I've had, I bet I haven't had three in the last six months. I've had three in one day. I've had three at one time. And I'd have somebody with 30 minutes sober working with somebody with no minutes sober. And it worked out all right. You know, now, it was, a, a, it was hilarious. And, and it, was a, <laughs> it was very exciting, you know, and got me excited. I called on an old boy one day, bad drunk. God knows he was mad. And, and he was married to one of the ugliest, meanest women I have ever seen in my life. I told him, I said, boy, I don't blame you for drinking. But, but he wanted to quit anyway. And... Uh, I went to get him one day, I thought he actually wanted to get sober, and I grabbed him up, hauled him up to, uh, we, we had one doc in the county that would shoot you in the rump with something if you were real drunk and they'd give you a prescription. So I had him out hauling him and I'm talking to him a mile a minute, his wife's sitting in the back seat correcting everything. <laughs> Ran to the pharmacy, went in and got the prescription, Phil came in, jumped in the car, looked up and I'm sitting in the back seat with that woman. Good God. <laughs> I about wanted to drink. So it, it, was a, it was a wild kind of a crazy time. But, but my God, what a tremendously important thing it did to binding us together as a fellowship. And so that was characteristic of, of how we spent our time, was in active work with other people. Some of us talked about reading the book. And sometimes if we couldn't sleep, we did. But we didn't put time into to big book studies, workshops. Some of the most important work I do today is in those things. But, it, but I'll assure you that it wasn't done the first 15 or 20 years that I was in AA. I never went to a big book group because I never heard of one. Never went to a workshop because there was no such thing. So we were folk who worked hard with other alcoholics and, by the way, started to do steps. But it was very much a, a, a sort of catch-as-catch-can process. And, and so we grew up kind of ragged. The, the, uh, the, 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 what we looked like when I look at the history was that we spent our time chasing drunks 
and trying to put together a plan. If you read the history of how the book was written, it's a wonder anybody survived the writing. You know, Bill held the pen, but he also had to battle all the drunks in the world, which wasn't many. He wrote a massive novel, or not, not a novel, but a massive book about a program that I, I, I guarantee you there are more people sitting in this room five times over than were standing up sober when that book was written. And so it was a tremendous undertaking. The rest of the time was spent trying to hustle money to get the book printed. printed. And so it was a really, really kind of a ragged kind of a thing. You know, they, and, and I don't want to take the, the, the mystery and glamour out of it very much, but I like to keep that kind of practical orientation to that. You know, sometimes when we talk about how the steps came into being, it, it almost sounds like Bill got off in his room with an Ouija board or something and started to do it and the steps appeared. Well, yeah, not quite, quite the way it happened. Now, I wasn't there, but I've listened to Bill talk about it and I've listened to others talk about it. He already had six when he started. All he had to do was just reword them, you know. And so it's a very practical kind of a thing. What he drew from were from the principles and the truths that were, were part of humanity. And all he did was take those principles that were set forth in the Oxford group and then reworked them to fit alcoholics. Now it was powerful. It was masterful. And it has stood the test of time. We've only changed one word in the steps in 68 years. We took out honest desire to stop drinking and just made a desire. <coughs> we also had experience in 12 steps, but that never did really make the cut. You know, so so we, we, those things have been powerful and, and they have really, really served well. And, uh, but, but when you think about that, of who it is that put us together, you know, and how this thing happened, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful story, but it's a very practical, down-to-earth story. It's not something that came out of a think tank. It was alcoholics in action who learned from experience. I guess that's why the steps are written in the past tense. It doesn't say, if you will do this, this will happen. It says, here's what we did, and then it happened. And so, very, very practical kind of thing. The, the thing that... It is interesting to stay on that what we were like thing. I, I could stay there forever. Let me, let me tell you where a, a, a real critical kind of a thing that's, that started to happen that was, I think, e extremely important in our, in our, in our fellowship. Uh, we, we were spending a lot of time in those days trying to, to get people outside of Alcoholics Anonymous to be supportive and helpful in what we were doing. There was a recognition of how much we needed responsible people to give us support and encouragement. And I guarantee you, now any of you who were here when we talked a little around this area two weeks or so ago, don't answer this thing, but let me just ask you out of, out of curiosity. You think about our history. And think about the important non-alcoholic people who were well known as supportive of Alcoholics Anonymous, people who were truly important in, in, in our history. You know, I'll throw out one just to start moving, a, a guy named Silkworth. Remember him? 
You know, the doc, when Bill had his spiritual experience and thought he was nuts, I count Silkworth the third founder because he had enough insight to say, Bill, you better keep it, buddy. It's better than what you got. Who else do you think of when you think of our history and non-alcoholics who stood out? Who? Rockefeller. Rockefeller, yeah. John D. Young fellow, important because he didn't give us any money. Not much, anyway. Gave us some. Carl Young, yeah. Psychiatrist who took Roland Hazard and said, man, you're going to have to change your whole noodle. He'd say it that way, but that's what he meant. Who else comes to mind? Who? Sister Ignatia. Sister Ignatia. Jack Alexander. Yeah, Jack Alexander. Yeah, great guy. You know, Sister Ignatia, you know, was the one that really did the work and let Dr. Bob take the bow. She's, she's the one who did that thing. Jack Alexander, for anybody who may not know, was a writer for the Saturday Evening Post who wrote the first really major impact article about Alcoholics Anonymous. He remained a friend of AA till he died. Uh, anybody else? Hey, Sam Shoemaker. Referred to AA as Shirt Sleeves Christianity. Sam Shoemaker. Yeah. <coughs> Who? Oh, Lois. Yeah. Now we have. To, she was the inside job, though. She she was non-alcoholic, and she the only thing she did was stimulate the development of Alanon. You know, <laughs> what wonderful person that and, and uh, what a contribution. Others that uh, you think of. Who? No, he was a member. Oh, yeah, he was a member. Can't count him. <laughs> uh, how about Warden Duffy? Opened up the first bars to let Alcoholics Anonymous come in and work with folks. Judge Murtaugh in New York, one of the early pioneers in court. Well, you can go on. My God, if you started getting on a roll with that, there'd be no end. And those were people who were especially prominent in our history. Now, let me ask you a, a more current question. Give me some names of people who are non-alcoholic leaders in this country who are strong supporters of Alcoholics Anonymous and known to be. Give me some names. Yeah. My wife, my wife I, I call her the <laughs> I'm glad to know that, Max. You need one. I guess you got <laughs> <laughs> anybody else? Anybody think of it? Well, yeah, I could drag that out because you're not going to come up with many. And I think there's an important message in that that I won't get into right now. But, but when we start looking at the, 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 the growth of Alcoholics Anonymous, maybe we outgrew our need for friends, eh? Or maybe we shut down our recognition of our need. For, well, anyway, think about that. And think about that Jack Alexander article that uh, there had been a little bit of publicity, but when that article hit the street, it had an impact that was unbelievable. Here we were, a struggling handful of people, literally fewer people than are sitting in this room, literally. And that article hit and said, we have an answer for alcoholism. We have a solution. And Alcoholics Anonymous was absolutely besieged with frantic calls for help from all over the globe. All over the globe. 
Can you imagine the challenge? You, know, you guys tackled putting together an old-timers deal. Can you imagine taking this little group or half of this group and trying to figure out how to respond to frantic calls for help, life or death kinds of cases all over the globe? What would you do? And that was the dilemma that confronted AA in the early 40s when the word got out. And our book was pretty prophetic when it, when it talked about how we would create the fellowship that we crave. And when I think about the folk who really stand out as absolute giants in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I think there are lots of them, but when I think of people who are absolute giants in Alcoholics Anonymous, certainly I think of Bill and Bob and, and those early guys and Clarence Snyder. I, th I, th I think of those guys. They were truly giants. But the folk to me who really took on the weight of responsibility were the folks who, who started to respond to those calls for help all around the world. The people who, who, who got the word and decided to give it a try. Somebody did it in Graham, North Carolina. Somebody did it in Burlington, North Carolina. I'll guarantee you it happened. Don't know who it was. But somebody got that word and they got the conviction that it might work. And they said, let's plant the flag here and take a stand. And they did. And they waited for help to come. That happened all over this country. And there were heroic people who took that lonely vigil. They didn't have the fellowship of even a little small group of people. They were by themselves with a vague hope that there might be something to this thing. And they hung on. And those, to me, are the truly heroic people around this country who, who did something powerful. I had the great privilege of knowing a lot of those people who did that in, in uh, this state. And in this country, but in this state. It, you know, if best I can tell, there's, there's like everything, you got different points of view about it, but the uh, best I can tell, AA in, in North Carolina started in Shelby. Uh, there's a little, one small school of thought that might have been down Rich Square. A guy moved down from Cleveland and, and planted the flag down there, but he brought it with him. Shelby, it was interesting to me how the fellowship started in, in North Carolina, the groups. First meeting ever held was in a black prison uh, when, back in the separate but equal days. There was a guy came in on an airplane in Charlotte, flew over a prison, said to himself, I bet there's drunks in there. And he went and talked to the warden and said, he got any drunks? He said, God, yeah, got a bunch of them. He said, let me have at them a little bit. And the guy agreed. That's the first AA meeting ever held in this state. Didn't become a group. That, but that group in Shelby started in exactly the way Bill had intended when, they, when he started putting the book out. He sent out notices to a lot of people, physicians, targeted physicians. And there was a physician in Shelby who received uh, the, uh, the book. And uh, he was a drug addict. He was not an alcoholic. He turned out he was a, he was a drug addict. He never got in the program, obviously. Uh, but what he did when he got that, it made sense to him. And he called a few of his friends who were alcoholic and asked them to come to his office to talk about this idea. I knew some of those people who attended that, that, that first meeting. 
And uh, so he called his bunch together, gave him the book, and said, good luck, guys. He bowed out, and that group's met ever since. Uh, I was really, really uh, thrilled with, 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 with the experience in a way. Uh, they asked me to come up here and speak at their 55th anniversary uh, sometime back. And when I, when I went up there that night, I was absolutely captivated by the fact that the two nurses who were on duty the day that those drunks came in to meet with the drug addict doctor are still living and were attending that meeting. Now, I don't mean as members, but they were there as special guests for the occasion. Well, I just, I, I just, it was unbelievable to me. As I captured them as quick as I could, I said, you got to tell me about that. And, and they said, what do you mean? I said, well, how did you feel about it? Did you feel like it was important? One of them said that she really thought that it was going to be something important. She sensed it would be something important. The other one said it just looked like a bunch of guys shooting the bull. <laughs> but they're both still here and both friends. <laughs> but those, those kind of things. I'll tell you one other thing about the, um, this business of, of, of there's crunch time in the fellowship. When I first came to North Carolina, I came here in 43, or 60, 1960, 43 years ago. And um, I went into Gastonia. And my second sponsor, stayed, he stayed there long enough to get me off the bus and greeted and kissed. Then he moved to Burlington, Jimmy, old Barney. And uh, he left me with uh, what he left in Gastonia. And, and Gastonia had a good group on, on certain days. But it was folks were sober. It seemed like on kind of a rotating schedule. You know, they, <laughs> there were only two of us that were sober and only one of us that was active and I was that one <laughs> and i tell you something I, I didn't have the flag holding deal quite like those early folk but I had the experience in a fairly large town of attending Alcoholics Anonymous by myself a bunch of times and that's a strange feeling had the, had the experience of trying to grow a group, of trying to get a group going. I'll tell you one thing I did that taught me a great lesson. I, uh, I'd heard of public information meetings. Never had seen one, but I'd heard of them. And it just made sense to me that if you want to get the word out to people, get it, herd them up and talk to them. So I did. I sent out a bunch of letters to everybody that I could even think of. Got the, got the sanctuary of the biggest church in town. Think big. Fill that sucker up. I mean, we had 700 and something people show up for a meeting about, I think they just wanted to know what on earth is this thing. And so here they came. Well, now I just got out of jail. I had not been out very long. And man, poor wouldn't even describe my condition. Bold would, but, 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 but. <laughs> So I figured we got to treat our, our guests right. So I had a catered, and I'm saying me, I had a catered dinner done. <laughs> well, I mean, my God, any human knows that any group of people, when they come in just like this breakfast, will come in and do a quick calculation and figure out what their proportionate share of the cost would be. Now, you know that. I got 700-something folks. I got a bill that absolutely is astronomical. I sent the buckets around, big buckets. 
got $47. Jeez. Boy, I'll tell you what, counting that money, I thought, I'm going back to jail, man. I'm trying to do God's work. I'm going to get locked up. And, uh, and then the word got out around the area, and it's amazing, that, uh, it's amazing how we respond to stuff. And we respond to joy, and we respond to, to deep trouble. And folks learned that, and I think they just basically said, you know, he, he's a good old boy, kind of dumb, but he, he means well. <laughs> and they bailed me out. And I promise you, 43 years since that happened, I have never done a single thing in this program without having full support and encouragement of the group I'm part of. Uh, man, that Long Ranger stuff will do you in. So those, <laughs> those were fun times, you know, and they're growing times. And I tell you one other thing about that. I, I had a guy come in to speak. I don't mean no reflection on Virginia. These guys are all big and well-fed from Virginia. But I had a guy come in from Virginia, and I'd heard him speak one time about the early days of AA in Richmond and about Jack White and all the stories of how stuff got going there. And so I asked him to come down and speak at this big public meeting because he had a story that was just, just perfect for that. So I invited him, and drunks, boy, doesn't pay to tell him what to do. I told him exactly what I wanted him to say. And he got up telling about some big fat woman and a fire hydrant and God knows I don't know what all. And, and I'm sitting there saying, get down, you dummy. Sit up. But it worked anyway, <laughs> in spite of everything. So anyway, th those are great times and they're action times and they're times that'll, that'll truly give you a deep sense of committed loyalty to the things around you in Alcoholics Anonymous. Some stuff started to ha happen at, um, under the heading of, of what happened. You know, what happened to start changing the character of what we were doing? It started to make a difference. You know, I mentioned when somebody wanted help, the only thing they had to do was call AA if they were fortunate enough to know about it. Most people didn't know about it. Uh, we went through a period in, uh, in fact, was still in the throes of it when I came in, when alcoholism was clearly a moral issue. I mean, universally, it was a moral issue. You found darn few people who had sympathetic feelings toward alcoholics. They were thought of as drunks. I thought of as, uh, as drunks. You know, that, and the whole notion of alcoholism as an illness hadn't even begun to, 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 to germinate much. There were a few little things going on where some people, mostly AA guys, who stimulated the development of stuff where some treatment activities and detox activities started to occur. We had a few things going around in North Carolina. I was, I was reminiscing a little bit this morning, and Jimmy, you remember this. I came up to back, I thought I was being smart, and it took me forever to get here. But I came up through Snow Camp, and way back, way back in the period I'm talking about, there was a place for alcoholics down there called Damascus Home. And uh, a guy named Claude Best operated that place for 100 years. Yeah, so there were things going. Uh, most of them were not clinical treatment type things. They were, they were places, like there were several of those around. There was a Hebron colony that still exists up, uh, up around the mountain somewhere up in there, around Boone, Hebron colony. And they were... I, I don't mean it literally, but they're almost like leper colonies in a way, but they were shorter term, you know, where the drunks would go and, and good religious people would try to give haven and, and, and give some help. And they, they were good programs. Uh, one of my good buddies and one of your good buddies is a guy named Bryant B. up in Mount Airy who was a, who was a product of Damascus Home. 
uh, went through that experience. So there were some things going on. Stuff started to happen. We started to get grudgingly gaining access to hospitals. Even though AA really was born in that hospital in Akron, Ohio, where Dr. Bert, Bob worked, that whole business of, of working with alcoholics was born there, there was almost no other hospital in the world that would accept alcoholics unless you had enough money to buy the hospital. Then you might get in under the diagnosis of gastrointestinal difficulties or something. But, uh, but just a treatment for a drunk didn't exist. Treatment for an alcoholic was jail or the state mental hospital at Dorothea Dix. Those were the classic places where people went. And, and there was nothing in the interim. I, I slid by it a, a, a minute ago, it, but it's an absolute truth. Back, back in the days when I was doing intensive 12-step work, almost around the clock, we had one resource in the entire county where you could take a drunk to get off the leaps or the DTs or the convulsions or whatever. And this literally is exactly the way it was. He was an old guy, a good old man, who practiced in, his, in a frame house. And to, if you wanted to get a drunk, all you'd do is shoot him in the rump. But you had to take him to the back door, just like a bootlegger. Could not go in the front door. And, and, and so when things started to come available so that we had a place to take drunks, I was deeply grateful for that. And... and um, and a great fan of, of, of the stuff that happened in terms of having resources. We, we had a place in Charlotte that uh, I say we called Wilmoth Hospital, W-I-L-M-I-T-H. And all it was was a, a, a sobering up joint, a tapering off place. And for 75 bucks, you could take somebody in for three days and get them, get them and they'd come out sober. And if you don't think a drunk could tell time, the way they sobered them up <laughs> was... They had X number of drinks at X at, at certain times. And brother, if it came nine o'clock and a drink was due, you didn't have to announce it. I guarantee the guy standing there, you know what time it is? <laughs> but it worked and it was a place. And I don't know how many times I've run up $75 I didn't have to get somebody in there for some help. So stuff started to happen. We started to get into hospitals slowly. I mean slowly, one at a time, not blanket stuff, but one hospital. And when we started to get into hospitals, we had to provide sitter service to stay with them. They wouldn't let nurses put up with the junk that is associated with, with, with people like me. And, and so we had to literally man a shift of people to look after the drunk and not leave him in there to be attended by medical staff. That was a long time down the road. But God was I ever grateful for that. And I, I, I tell you this one story, it's always just, it's just sim, sim, symbolic to me of, of, of that kind of thing. That I, I had duty one night, at a shift, and, and I went up to uh, relieve the guy, met him at the door, and I said, uh, how's the guy doing? He said, oh, he's okay, he's, he's fine. He left, I went in the room, no drunk. Yeah, I mean, and he just left. I went, where is the fool? You know, <laughs> I mean, alcoholics going to be a little hard to track, but good God, how do you lose him in a cube? And so I look in the, the windows about that wide, you know, see, you're not going through there. And I'm looking in the ceiling, pulling out the tiles, you know, that under the bed, the bathroom. And I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely mystified. And, and then 
I heard a noise over in the locker. They had a stand-up locker over there. And I heard this clatter over there. So I went over and opened the door. And here he was. He thought he was at the urinal. It's where he thought he was. So he's taking care of business. And, <laughs> and I said, what are you doing in there, fool? Like I couldn't see. And he looked at me with, with total indignation. And he said, I beg your pardon. <laughs> I said, pardon my ass. Get out of that. Get back in bed. Dude. Well, they... They were wild and crazy days, you know, that, but man, was it ever great to start getting something open. And then we started to get a little bit more progress in that. We started to get a little bit of, uh, of uh, development slowly but surely with that thing. And then somewhere along in, uh, I don't know, maybe early 70s or somewhere like that, we started to get some signals. The American Medical Association kind of nodded toward alcoholism as an illness. Sometimes we say they declared it an illness. Not so. They said it's like an illness. And that was enough to give a little bit of encouragement to the medical world. I'll tell you what really gave some encouragement was along as treatment started to gradually grow up a little bit, a thing happened somewhere in the early, maybe in the early 70s, best I can tell. They start, the, we started to get third-party payment. Insurance companies started to pay for treatment of alcoholism. Now you talk about an absolute explosive phenomenon in this country. That it, the minute there was pay for that, it just proliferated all around the country. And, 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 and it, I never thought I would ever see it in my lifetime, but there was a time, many of you remember it, when treatment for alcoholism was almost available on demand anywhere in this country. And that's almost literally true. Very few places didn't have ready access to, to treatment. Well, that's great. You know, it, it, was, it, was, it was an exhilarating thing. And even though I had never had the experience, I'll tell you that I was profoundly grateful to see that happen. It, it meant a great deal to me to be able to take an alcoholic to a place where they would be treated in a decent setting with dignity, with treating the illness as an illness. That, that was tremendously gratifying to me. One thing that makes it important to me, I had the, the, the experience, not the pleasure, I had the experience of holding a drunk in my arms while he died and I had not a clue what to do with him. Not a clue. So my appreciation for the resource that, that was, was generated uh, is, is stays to this day. And, and, and one of the brightest things that ever happened in our history, I think, became one of the most troubling things that, that ever happened. And it was that whole business of how we deal with the emergence of treatment. And, and, and so you started seeing stuff, subtle changes. And Jimmy, you remember my note. You started seeing subtle changes in AA in terms of our attitude about newcomers, our attitude about active work with alcoholics, because as treatment took hold and started to, to, to produce, we started getting unbelievable kind of, of experience in, in, in having alcoholics delivered to us. We didn't have to go hunt anybody. Yeah, all we had to do was just open the door and somebody's unloading a van or something. And, and so we're absolutely overrun with newcomers. Now that sounds like a pleasant problem. 
but it can be a tremendously difficult problem. If you're in a small, not too deep group, and you get inundated with, a, uh, with, with three times more newcomers than you got members, that's a huge challenge. Uh, uh, example, right down there in my little old town, uh, we just, they started a treatment center there, and uh, we met with those folks before they ever opened their doors and, and worked on our, our cooperative relationship. And uh, one day I got a phone call from a guy, uh, a guy, I'd welcome him to his first meeting, and he called about this, uh, he said, Tom, I got, we got a real problem down at our, our new group. It started a group called a newcomer group. Well, my God, that was like candy on, on Christmas to, to a treatment center. Where else would you want to send a guy to a newcomer group? That's perfect. And uh, he said, last night at our meeting, a bus pulled up and 45 patients got off. I said, God, that's great. He said, we only got five members. <laughs> and he said, we didn't have enough coffee. I said, well, get a bigger pot. He said, we got no money. <laughs> they don't contribute because treatment centers tell them that they consider that an extension of their treatment and they don't, they don't, they don't encourage them to contribute. Well, it, it creates some problems, eh? Yeah. Number one, it creates some tension, some uneasiness, and, and some discomfort with this deal. You started to hear stuff in the fellowship like, those folks are doing our 12-step work. Little resentment. You got people in there getting paid to do what we do for nothing. Started to hear that kind of conversation. You started to get what I only can describe as sort of a hardening of the attitudes. Where it's very important to me, and I do it, to say when I meet a newcomer that I need them more than they need me. I say that to every newcomer that I, that I welcome to AA. I know that they never believe it. How would you believe that? How's a guy 46 years sober need me with one day more than I need him? I don't expect a newcomer to believe that right off the bat. I expect him to believe it in time. What's important is that I believe that. Because if I get to the point where I start thinking I'm doing some benevolent gesture to a newcomer, my usefulness is done. My usefulness is done. The heart and soul of this program is one alcoholic reaching out to another. And when I put myself into some different category, I've lost it. I've lost it. And so that's what started to happen we, when we started to get people in. And yeah, I had a guy in, in, a, in a meeting right in my little old town with 33 years sober who said to me, you know, you really can't work with those people from the treatment center. You know they're not sincere. About as sarcastic as 
from any time in anyone in in anywhere where 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 reaches reaches out for 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 help i want to 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 hand a bit of aid to be there be there be there and that's enough and that's and that's talking about my hand 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 and so and so that's 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 the kind of kind of thing that thing that thing that started have to have to have to have where we we started started hard hardening and in attitudes and seeing our, seeing ourselves as it, 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 in some different, different kind of kind of a light, all of our our outreach each each work work if you if you call it that, the outreach reach work work of trying to re- to reach out and link 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 in with places that that capture alcoholics started to dissipate, and they started to go away. We didn't need to do it anymore, I guess. Yes. And so complacency took over. I suspect, I suspect that we're dealing right now with a whole generation of alcoholics who have essentially missed that kind of important And I rarely go anywhere, and most of us say, hey, but I rarely go anywhere that I hardly get out of the airport. And some member is saying, y'all having trouble with those slip signing things. It's near comes up all over the country. It's been a, 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 a troubling, divisive kind of a thing that we have, have, have had real difficulty dealing with. Let me take you back a ways. You mentioned Carl Jung. Carl Jung worked with a guy named Roland Hazard, who never became an AA member. But he's very much a part of the seedbed that led to Alcoholics Anonymous. Because Roland Hazard finally got sober when he told him to get his noodles straightened out. And it would take a spiritual transformation is what he told him. And, and so Roland, just sort of as a hobby, I guess, tried to help drunks. And he got hold of a guy by the name of Ebby Thatcher. I met Ebby. Ebby looked like a drunk. I mean, he just looked like a drunk. I like the old boy. Uh, Bill Wilson called Ebby Thatcher his sponsor. And Ebby had just very short sobriety when he died. He spoke at our state convention one time. Were you here then? It was right about the time you were getting here. I think maybe the reason you came was Eddie, Abby came down here and spoke, and Jimmy came out of the woods. He, got, <laughs> he, he just was a bad drunk, old Abby. And he got in trouble up in Vermont where all of our founders came from. 
And he got into some trouble up there about shooting his house or something. And, and they had him in court. And the judge getting ready to give him a little taste of time. Now listen to this. Roland Hazard kind of liked old Ebby. And he went down to the court. And he said, hey, judge, how about letting me take old Ebby and try to help him? And the court, the judge said, okay, Ebby, go ahead and do that. Think about that in terms of what I just described about the quality of our reaction to that phenomenon today. This whole business of, of, of we've moved into some sort of an institutionalized package of that. And we've taken the humanity out of it. Let me give you a real live example of what that looks like in real life. You know, what I worry about when I look at something like that, I'm not worried about the aggravation of the court. Not worried about that. I'm not worried about the aggravation of us. We're okay. What I'm worried about is that poor joker that's caught in the middle who's got the squeeze coming on him. That's who I worry about. And I'll tell you why I worry about him. I was in a town out in the Midwest a while back. And I, don't, I, I rarely go to daytime meetings, but I was loose and, and they had a meeting going on. I went in and sat in. I was like a psychiatrist at a burlesque show. I, I, went, I went for the meeting, but I was watching the people because I was intrigued with this business about slip signing stuff. Because it troubled me deeply. So I sat there and I, they had a, a, a ritual set up, almost a ritual, where you go in the meeting, big old meeting, and they had a raised platform with a little desk on it. And the secretary would sit at that desk. And the guys who came in who had papers to be signed, I don't know if somebody trained them somewhere to do this or not. I didn't ask. I just observed. But I watched what happened. And the guys that had paper to be signed would come in, and they'd come over to that desk and had an inbox on the desk. And so they'd come over and they'd put the paper in the, in the inbox, and during the meeting, the secretary would sign those slips. And when they'd get through, they'd come back and pick it up, pick it up. Well, I watched a guy come in. I picked one. And I never took my eyes off him the whole time. He came in, nice fellow. I think. I mean, he was, didn't disrupt anything. Put his paper in, sat down in the middle of the group. Was, meeting was on step five. And he sat there. Didn't, it was, was not hungry with attention, but he was not distracting either. He just sort of sat there. And then when he got through, he got up, got his slip of paper, and walked out. Now, what's wrong with that picture? What's wrong with that picture? He never interacted with one human. Not one. What do you suppose he'd have told the guys on the street if they'd have said, well, where have you been? And he'd have told them, he said, what do you think of it? What do you think he'd have told them? You think that's a magic moment for that guy? You think he would describe Alcoholics Anonymous as a warm and welcoming place where it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, that you'll get the genuine hand of fellowship? Far from it. I was in St. Louis two or three weeks ago. I think it was the second oldest. Anybody ever been to the club in St. Louis, the old club in St. Louis? Go if you get a chance. Elegant, elegant old place. Elegant place. Uh, and uh, I walked in, 
And I just kind of went cold when I got to the door. Because at the second oldest club in, it, 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 that's associated with AA, there's a big sign on the door that doesn't say welcome. It says, we do not sign paper. Is that what you want alcoholics to be greeted with? They, these things are not just aggravating. But if our primary purpose is to carry the message to the alcoholic who still suffers, and they have to go through that kind of a hurdle to get here, puts it really uphill. Now once in a while you'll get people who heroically make it through that. But it's credit them more than us. Well, and it's, and it's not that difficult to solve. I'll tell you just one real quick thing about that. We, we had a, I, I really was bugged about this thing, so we have a correctional facility committee meeting, a committee in our group, and so we, we were talking one night, and I just brought that up. I said, why don't we see if we can do something about that paper slining business? And, and uh, one of, the second oldest guy in the room said, oh, Tom, you can't do anything about that. Man, they do it all over the country. I said, well, let's don't fix the whole country. Let's just see if we can do something in our little place here. And he said, okay. Well, we, I won't go through the whole deal, but we, we, we set up an appointment with the head of probation in that area because that's who actually manages that thing. Now, we would have gone to the court if we'd have needed to. We set up a meeting with probation folk. And in preparing for the meeting, one day I was flying somewhere, and, and I do my best riding when I don't have oxygen, I guess. I, I started riding... <laughs> <clears throat> and I started writing down advantages and disadvantages, you know. I mean, I know that somebody sends those folk there with good intention. So I, I really, I think, did the best I could to, to be free and to list positive values of that. Why would somebody do that? And I listed ten things, all of which had direct value to the criminal justice supervisor, the probation officer. All of them had value to them. Three, I put question marks behind because I said maybe, maybe they could have some value to the drunk. I didn't really believe it, but I, I said I'll give it the benefit of the doubt. Then on the other side, I listed disadvantages and I quit at 28. Quit at 28. And I went into a whole bunch of stuff about making a second-class citizen out of somebody, making them walk in with a brand on their head. About, you know, I always wondered why I wouldn't sign the paper. You know, I wouldn't be ugly to the drunk. But, you know, if somebody would come to me and say, well, you sign this pay, I'd say, oh, Dennis will do that. Right? He'll take care. Now, that's a chicken way to deal with that. But that's what I did. And I thought, why don't I do that? And, and the reason I don't do it is because it makes something out of me other than a, than a fellow alcoholic. It makes me a validator. I'm the guy who stamps Haynes, and I don't want to be the guy who stamps Haynes. I want to be an alcoholic who talks to you head to head. And so that's a disruptive thing. When we met with the probation people, the, the, the first we were defensive, and then when we got to that one, the guy said, well, I'll be damned. I never thought of that. I hadn't either. I hadn't either. Fact of business is, we got through with a whole bunch of other stuff. There has never been a piece of paper in our group since, except from a treatment center. We had a treatment center since somebody wanted us to validate them. Uh, somebody asked me, he said, well, do you still get people from probation? Thank God I was able to give them this answer. I don't know. It's none of my business 
What do I care what drives you here? It's none of my business. Your devils are your own. And you don't have to put them out in front of me to gain admission here. My job, <coughs> excuse me, my job is to stand by the, <coughs> the <coughs> excuse me, stand by the door and greet the next one that comes in here. <coughs> Let them know by word and deed that I need them more than they need me. If I do that, I'll be okay. So those things are workable. We have a name for that kind of thing, Dick. It's called CPC, Cooperation with the Professional Community. Typically what we do with situations like that is back off in our tent and talk about how unthinking and how uncaring those people are who do that. Well, the reason they do that is because for about a generation now, we have not taken the time or trouble to go tell them the right way. We think they're going to teach it in Elon College, and they're not. They're not. So that kind of thing is, is when you look at, 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 the, 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 at where we are now, and I'm kind of leading into that fourth thing that I, I wanted to talk about before we quit. Um, we, we're, we're a, a program whose, our program has never changed, but, but the way we operate has changed dramatically with the emergence of treatment. We lost an awful lot of those committed principles which make us a vital healing kind of a place. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you this, in, in, in all candor, and it's just, it's my belief. I've been as active and as busy in this program as anybody I know, for as long as anybody I know. And I honestly believe that our level of confidence that we enjoy as a fellowship has never been lower in terms of the world around us. People are not angry at Alcoholics Anonymous. They just tend to kind of write us off. They kind of write us off. I listened to a television program that just caught my eye on C-SPAN the other night that was uh, talking about alcohol and drug pro pro problems in a community. And uh, I listened to folks talk about that problem for an hour and things to do. Alcoholics Anonymous was never mentioned, nor was Narcotics Anonymous. See, it's not a matter of, of hostility. It's a matter of just disregarding and the confidence that people feel that we are folks who will reach out, it's in a lot of trouble. I'll tell you one other evidence that um, I hope you'll be concerned about. A friend, a friend from, a, from our, one of our, down in our area, went down to a neighboring town. And I could give you a thousand cases, but one that just says something to me that Guy went down, he was professionally visiting that community. They sat down with a community council of whatever they were working on, some community stuff. And in the course of it, uh, the problems with alcohol came up. And you know, not with alcohol much, but the people who, who, who have the problem came up. And this guy listened for a while and he said, spoke up and he, he, didn't, he didn't break his anonymity, but he just said, uh, have you ever thought about inviting anybody from AA here? And, and a chair lady said, yes, but they won't come. They won't show up. Is that a hell of a note? 
Is that a hell of a note? Is that 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 we want to give to somebody? Is that we're people who make commitments and then again them? Confidence goes down. And respect goes down. I'm concerned about that kind of stuff. I'm a concerned member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I can't do everything, but I guarantee you I can do something. I, I tell you what my belief is, and I hope particularly old timers will, will, will hear this. When when I start thinking about my responsibility, you know, what's my responsibility? Well, here's the way I look at it. I have to be able and willing to get beyond the sphere of my own personal magic. Let me break that down a little bit. If, if I can think only in terms of what I can personally do with what I have to offer, then I'm going to have an extremely limited contribution. It'll be valuable, but it won't be extensive. And what I'm talking about is that as a member, I want to be as sound a member as I'm capable of being. I want to be well informed. I want to be aware of the things that are going on in Alcoholics Anonymous. When an issue comes up that I have a discussion about, I want to be able to talk sense and not just blurt out bias and prejudice. I, you know, I want to be able to contribute. So as an individual, there's a lot I can do. But when I welcome somebody in there, hey, there's a lot I can do. That's in the sphere of my personal influence, my personal magic, whatever you want to call it. But I don't care how good I am or how good you are. That will only be as good as the shadow it, that, that it casts. That's all. And if I really want to have effectiveness with people, then I've got to recognize that I'm not the solution. I'm not the guy that's going to, going to heal drunks. And if I'm going to help somebody find a solution, I have to have a group that will deliver on what I promise. Not enough for me to give them a dazzling word show. I've got to have a group that I can count on so that when I take them there, I know that I can be confident it's going to be a healing environment where they'll get better. So I want to be a good member of a solid group. Because my, work, my group is what delivers and it's where I do my work. Tremendously important. And then if I want to be effective beyond that, I need to think in terms of, you know, it's like our, our tradition, fourth tradition says that the group's autonomous. Sometimes we think autonomous means exclusive, that, it, that we, we're into ourselves. Autonomous simply means that that we're free to do as we will in a group, provided it doesn't affect somebody else. You know, I'm extremely leery of, of this business about I belong to the best group in the world. Who knows? Who knows? And it's, it's silly. You know, my group, and this is what I need to remember, my group is no better than the group next door. We're part of the same fellowship. So when I get caught up in how sound my group is, I've got to take a look at what kind of a neighbor am I to the groups around. I've got to take a look at what we do as a, as a unified force in AA. When we elect a GSR in our group, 
I want to make sure that we don't just get somebody who doesn't so, know how to say no. I want to make sure we get somebody that will study the issues and grow and, and become somebody who can make good decisions and represent our group well and our area, our state. The, 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 what we do in our state is vitally important. How many minutes have I got left? How much? Four minutes. After the meeting. <laughs> I'll be glad to I'll be glad to show you something that I'm in. Okay. Yeah, that'd be fine. All right. The uh, but I, I hope that you'll hear in that what I've just talked about. I hope you'll hear a challenge. To to for God's sakes, don't down the vine. For God's sakes, don't take what you've what gained and go off and sit around and stare at your navel about it. You know, but people with some time in this program. My, I am without question the most rewarded man in the United States of America. I think because of that, I've got a responsibility to share what I've been so richly given with anybody that will be willing to let me share it with them. And, and so that's my job. It's not any hardship either. Now, I told you in the beginning, I am an extremely active, busy guy. And that's not because I'm bored. It's because I've found that when I get up to my ears in this thing and give it everything I've got, I cannot give it more than it gives back. And I am truly, truly. The, the, I think, to me, it's one of the most important things I could tell you. I cannot remember. I cannot remember the last time I was bored. Anywhere. I just don't have time for that. I'm so busy in the business of living and I told Jimmy, that one of these days I'm going to fall out. And I hope I'm in wide open sprint, sprint, till I go down. Yeah, that's what I want to do. A friend of mine says that he turned 70 just like I did. Said, folks told him he ought to slow down. And he said, my God, slow down. I'm 70 years old. I'm about done. I've got to hurry. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody asked a, a well-known writer what he would do if he knew he had six months to live. He said, I'd write faster. And that's the way I want to go. I don't want to be sitting around vegetating. I want to be in this business of welcoming folks so I can stay green. If you'll shut that thing down, I'll, uh, does it shut down?